So welcome to the first episode of Bare Bones Physiology, a podcast that myself and Muhammad have created in the hopes of providing a wide array of interested and keen listeners and viewers into the world of exercise physiology. As student researchers ourselves, we understand the importance of research in academia, but we also recognize the potential gap between academia and real-world practical application and understanding. So with that, the meaning behind bare bones signifies the stripping down of all the scientific and complex lingo into more simplified and digestible content so that anyone with an interest in exercise physiology can easily follow along. So this is a podcast that myself and Muhammad have committed to putting out every two weeks with the hopes of covering a vast array of topics. And I think what makes myself and Muhammad, you know, such a great team on this project is due to our similar interest on how exercise benefits so many people, but both of us looking at it from different lenses. So speaking for myself, I have an interest in understanding how exercise can enhance and maximize performance, especially in athletic populations. So prior to beginning my master's degree at York University, I, uh, I completed my undergraduate degree at the University of Prince Edward Island, studying science and kinesiology. Um, so while doing my undergrad at UPEI, I was fortunate to have been involved uh, with different varsity teams and in different roles from athletic therapy to athletic testing to strength and conditioning, et cetera. In addition, I also worked as a strength and conditioning coach at linked strength and conditioning for three years, where I was able to work with athletes, non-athletes, elderly, injured, et cetera. So a range of uh, populations. So now being at York University, I'm beginning to work on cold water immersion studies and how cold water immersion might or might not mitigate the effects of fatigue accumulation following sprint exercise. One thing I also do want to stress is um, that whatever is discussed on the podcast during any episode is in no way associated uh, with our current academic institution. The thoughts, opinions, and interpretations of topics are solely our own. So with that, I'll pass it to Mohammed so he can speak a bit about himself and his background, as well as some topics he is interested in that we will discuss in future episodes. So Mohammed, take it away. Absolutely. Uh, thanks a lot, Andrew. And uh, yeah, my name is Mohammed. I'm in my fourth year of kinesiology and health science at York University. Uh, my interest mainly lies in trying to understand the physiological and molecular mechanisms of neuromuscular fatigue. So that's within the context of chronic diseases, but also within the context of improving athletic performance and trying to optimize how athletes can kind of deal with neuromuscular fatigue as something that occurs uh, with them as they perform physical activity, but also trying to see, okay, well, you know, within the context of diseases, how can neuromuscular fatigue be understood better as well as uh, dealt with in a better way. And and I think that that mainly stems from my interest in, uh, in the future, of course, uh, hoping for a career as a physician scientist. Because uh, I'm currently a fourth year uh, student in kinesiology and health science at York University. I'm looking forward to kind of uh, continuing to expand my experience in research uh, as a student researcher. So I'm currently working uh, on a project within the Muscle Health Research Center at York, uh, focused mainly on uh, the connection between interstitial glucose and neuromuscular fatigue um, and how athletes can optimize their, optimize their performance uh, using continuous glucose monitors and carbohydrate feeding and so on and so forth. So, yeah. Uh, that's a little bit about uh, me, and uh, I'll now get right into what we're supposed to be talking about today, which is specifically in relation to cancer and exercise. And I think this topic is really intriguing in many ways because um, looking at cancer and exercise, there's been a lot of research looking at uh, sort of how can, can people with cancer, patients with cancer kind of improve 
disease outcomes, but at the same time, how exercise can also be used to treat so many different things. And uh, just to start off with, because I mean, it's bare bones physiology. So we're trying to get the concepts down to their basics, uh, just defining and understanding what cancer is. So what cancer is really is that it's mutations that happen within certain cells and these mutations accumulate on top of one another and they continue happening until you develop the cancer cell. And really the whole idea of a cancer cell is that it just keeps dividing. It just keeps dividing. And the thing about cells within the body is that cell division is regulated, right? It's not something that just keeps going on forever. It happens when it needs to happen. So the thing with cancer cells is that they just divide without any sort of control. And that, of course, does lead to certain impacts uh, within the body that are uh, quite detrimental and that lead to uh, really the negative outcomes that happen with uh, certain people with cancer uh, when, of course, things go by the wayside. So uh, to start off, the first paper that we're talking about within that context is a paper titled The Effects of Acute Exercise Training on Tumor Outcomes in Men with Localized Prostate Cancer, a Randomized Controlled Trial. So what the authors of this study did is that they had a group of patients with cancer, right? Prior to uh, uh, performing the operation on them, they had them go through a high-intensity uh, exercise training type protocol, right? And then they then looked at how uh, that exercise training protocol affected certain things within cancer outcomes. And one of the things that we do notice within cancer specifically is that so that it continues growing, so that it continues dividing and sort of doing that uncontrollably, what it does is that it starts diverting vascularization or or just blood cells and uh, sorry blood vessels and blood flow towards it right and that just leads to that blood flow being diverted towards it and that's one of the things that actually make cancer such a detrimental disease but at the same time also one of the things that happens is that because cancer just continues growing uncontrollably it cannot forever get more vascularization it cannot forever get more blood flow and then that leads to something called hypoxia happening what is hypoxia? Well, hypoxia is the reduction in oxygen supply to an organ or a tissue, right? And cancer being something that continues dividing, as we know, cells turn into tissues, turn into organs. So it's just a clump of cells together. That cancer tissue needs oxygen and it develops hypoxia as a result. And this cancer, this hypoxia that happens in cancer actually does also have detrimental effects. So really, one of the two main things, although, yes, the authors of this study did look at other things, but they also looked at specifically the vascularization and that aspect of hypoxia. And what they found is that high-intensity exercise training does not really have a significant difference or impact on vascularization and cancer hypoxia occurrence. One of the things to keep in mind, though, within this context, within the context of the study, and what actually, interestingly enough, the authors of this study do bring up, is that the high-intensity exercise training protocol was just one bout within this study. So it was not sort of over a period of time, chronic training happening. On the other hand, it was mostly like just one bout, and that's it. So in a way, I think that this is what actually the authors of the study allude to, which is that, that in the future, there needs to be more of a look into chronic training um, and let's say a high intensity exercise training protocol. So I think that that's really uh, where uh, the future research could be heading towards uh, within the context of this study. And uh, yeah.
Yeah, just in addition onto that paper, like it would be interesting to see sort of that study reproduced, but within a chronic setting um, to see sort sure. of what uh, results may come of that. So, no, that's an interesting paper for sure. Um, and sort of just continuing on with that, um, a paper that I'm going to cover um, is titled The Role of Home-Based Exercise in Maintaining Skeletal Muscle During Preoperative Pancreatic Cancer Treatment. And it's an interesting one, um, certainly because individuals diagnosed with pancreatic cancer are generally older and present with current loss of skeletal muscle due to age and disease already. Um, however, looking at the forms of treatment before surgery, things like chemotherapy and radiation may further contribute to the accelerated loss of skeletal muscle. So low skeletal muscle mass and loss of skeletal muscle associated with cancer treatments may lead to poor post-surgical outcomes and life expectancies. So they used a term that I thought was really interesting, which was exercise prehabilitation. I really like that phrase. Um, essentially, it's a strategy to potentially reduce the acceleration of skeletal muscle loss using prescriptions of resistance exercise. Um, so they did reference other studies in the past that have had success and have shown favorable outcomes, um, which made this study a little bit more interesting as well. Uh, seeing if they can sort of reproduce it in, in um, uh, basically people with, with, with pancreatic cancer. Um, so one, two outcomes that they were really looking at here was skeletal muscle mass in both quantity and the quality. So when they meant quantity, they're looking at the total mass. And when they assess quality, it's sort of whether fat infiltration and the extent to fat infiltration within the tissue. Um, so the study itself, the authors hypothesized that participants who participated in a home-based exercise routine would better preserve muscle quantity and quality. And that's against controls, um, participants, or I guess not participants in this case, but people with pancreatic cancer who did not undergo exercise. So sort of their exercise protocol that they were looking at was 60 minutes of moderate intensity aerobic exercise per week and 60 minutes of resistance training using resistance tubes. So again, this was at home. So they tried to minimize the amount of equipment and they use things like tubes, uh, bands, that sort of stuff, more accessible stuff. Um, and as I mentioned before, two outcomes they were looking at, skeletal muscle quantity and quality. So the quantity was assessed by looking at skeletal muscle index. And then the quality was assessed by looking at skeletal muscle density. Looking at sort of the results throughout the entire training protocol, and this I found very interesting, um, sort of an average sort of participation in weekly aerobic exercise was 119 minutes. That's for all participants, but only 42 minutes for weekly resistance exercise. And as mentioned, sort of the prescription was 60 minutes of both. So they sort of exceeded aerobic and didn't really meet the expectations for resistance exercise. And then looking more into sort of the adherence of it, it was quite low for resistance training, 27%, whereas aerobic exercise saw 85%, which is much better than resistance training. And then when looking further more into the results, when looking at sort of the quantity of muscle, which is measured as skeletal muscle index, there was a decrease in the control group, but stayed more or less the same for the exercise group suggesting a preservation of muscle mass, so total muscle. A trend of improved quality of muscle in the exercise group was seen, but it wasn't enough to be a significant change. And then one thing I did note within sort of a limitation of the study was again, coming back to resistance exercise and that low adherence group. I think when we look at a study that is 
looking at total skeletal muscle, whether it's mass or quantity. And we're trying to resistance train, which is build muscle mass, or in this case, preserve muscle mass. And it's a low adherence. I don't think that's going to be strong enough to sort of justify sort of at home exercise. I think maybe a larger sample size, maybe better adherence rates that I would have liked to have seen that, but again, can't fault the authors with that. Um, it might speak a little bit more to the extent and maybe some of the limitations and the things that need to be changed with sort of the resistance training care uh, with regard to unsupervised exercise, but definitely an interesting study nonetheless. So, Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, yeah, the cool thing about this study is the fact that, yeah, as, as, as you say, I mean, it really kind of just leaves it up to the patients and kind of looks at um, how they engage with physical activity and to see that divide. I mean, like yeah. much higher participation in aerobic, much lower with resistance. That's, that's, that's really cool. And I think it really speaks to, uh, you know, the behaviors and sort of the engagement of uh, patients with cancer, but also just generally speaking with the general population when it comes to just like exercise and training. So yeah, that's pretty cool. And for sure. And I think when people think aerobic exercise, especially with regard to moderate intensity, moderate intensity could just be going for a walk. Right. And I think so many people go for a walk, whether it's out in the neighborhood, whether it's on a treadmill, it's very easily accessible because you have the entire environment to basically walk within. But resistance exercise, not so much. And I think there maybe is a little bit of a knowledge gap between sort of the, the practitioner, the one sort of distributing the programs and the actual participants undergoing the treatment or the exercise in this case. So I think filling that gap a little bit more would make a little bit more sense. And, and hopefully in the future that will be addressed. But I think that might speak to some of those low adherence rates. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, so I, I think, uh, moving on from that and kind of, uh, you know, pivoting back to, uh, based some of the ideas relating to cancer. Um, I will, I will have to say that, um, this paper that I'm about to discuss is one that, um, I, I, I would say I had the, you know, the hardest time kind of thinking, okay, like how, how will I boil it down? I'll sort of, you know, the concepts and whatnot. And I think that really speaks to the quality of the paper itself because it has such a wide scope of looking at like so many specific things and kind of clumping it all within the same paper, which I think uh, does indicate to me at least that it will have a lot of impact when it comes to understanding, um, you know, some of the mechanisms that go into cancer. And uh, the paper that I'm about to go into, it's called, it's titled uh, Muscle Weakness Precedes Atrophy during cancer cachexia and is linked to muscle-specific mitochondrial stress. So before I get into the specifics of what this paper involves, I will first start off by explaining what cancer cachexia is. Show you what cancer cachexia is. The basic concept of it is that you have patients with cancer, right? And then over time, they start having a reduction in their skeletal muscle mass. That's as easy as it goes, right? So for example, skeletal muscles the stuff that we sort of voluntarily control, right? The, the, the arms, thighs, legs, right? It, and, but it also, interestingly enough, uh, you know, for many of our listeners, it could be the respiratory muscles. It is actually, as a matter of fact, they're respiratory muscles. So uh, that includes, for instance, the diaphragm. So, you know, to get into more detail, what this study really is about is that it talks about how weakness in muscles right? So the muscle not producing enough force or not producing as much force as it used to happens before that reduction in skeletal muscle mass, right? So what has been understood in the literature is that cancer is that patients with cancer over time do have that reduction in force output over time, but it was often the understanding 
that this atrophy that happens, or, or let's say reduction in skeletal muscle mass, is really the root cause of that weakness that happens. But what this paper shows, and, and I, I just want to emphasize that this paper is one that was done on animal models, on, on mouse models uh, that were injected with C26 um, uh, colon cancer uh, cell model. Um, it is one that I think uh, highlights the importance of now understanding at a deeper level the molecular mechanisms of, of, how, of how weakness occurs in skeletal muscles before that atrophy does occur. So I, I will just uh, start off by saying that uh, the paper, of course, goes into many different pathways, but one of the pathways that it goes into is um, certain metabolic mechanisms. So these metabolic mechanisms, for example, include something like the electron transport chain. So the electron transport chain, to kind of sum it up quite briefly, is that you have a transport of electrons across the, uh, the inner mitochondrial membrane, right? And that transfer of that, that transfer of electrons, what it does is that it leads up to buildup of uh, protons, and that, that and, and then that leads up to uh, the production of ATP, which is the energy currency of the cell, right? But we also have another pathway, which is oxidative in nature, which is called the Krebs cycle. And the Krebs cycle is cycle that exists in the mitochondria. I'm not going to go into much detail about that. But what it does is that it produces certain side products that do eventually lead into the electron transport chain. And you do have another metabolic mechanism that the paper also highlights, which is creatine phosphate uh, producing ATP. So that is uh, a very fast way of producing ATP or energy within the cell. And that is also one of the mechanisms that the paper discusses. So to just to kind of give a brief highlight of, of what happens there, the paper does discuss that, interestingly enough, that weakness that happens prior to an actual reduction in skeletal muscle mass happens across the board in locomotor muscles, so muscles that are used with movement, and in respiratory muscles, so muscles that are used uh, that are the, the diaphragm muscle in particular, right? But then when, when we look deeper into the metabolic mechanisms, yes, there are certain similarities in terms of how metabolic mechanisms might be impacted, but there are also specific differences. And of course, if you'd like to kind of, you know, that paper sparked your interest and you would like to kind of check out more of the nitty gritty of what happens there, you can absolutely feel free to do so. But there are certain differences when it comes to ETC or electron transport chain, when it comes to Krebs cycle, when it comes to creating uh, phosphate producing ATP, all, all these things do kind of to some degree differ or are similar across the board. So that I think really speaks to the fact that we need to develop a better understanding of these molecular mechanisms. And at the same time, also start thinking about, well, since there are some differences in these mechanisms, how can we then start perhaps in the future pondering about, okay, what are some drug interventions uh, that we can use to target the occurrence of cancer cachexia? that would work across the board in a way. So that, that reduction in quality of life of patients with cancer, as well as also the worsening outcomes that happen as a result of that cancer cachexia in patients with cancer doesn't occur as much, or perhaps that they just have an improved quality of life, generally speaking, which then feeds also into an improved outcome at the end with cancer. So very interesting paper, very complicated stuff, I have to admit. But at the same time, I think that it does have a lot of value when it comes to our understanding of just cancer cachexia and cancer in general. Yeah, Mohammed, I think you did a great job explaining that. Um, it definitely <laughs> is a, so. 
it was a dense but a paper chock full of information and very valuable information as you For mentioned sure. before um and yeah i think that's a tremendous paper so um absolutely and all these papers will be the links will be available in the description as well so just want to make that uh, note as well so if any of them interest you or pique any interest um feel free to check out the description click on the link and you'll have access to the uh, to the articles or at least the link to the articles um so yeah no that's great and uh sort of finishing off rounding off our four articles i'm going to talk about one that sort of piqued a little bit of my interest lately heart rate variability um, but this is the title of heart rate variability and cardiovascular adaptations among cancer survivors following a 26-week exercise intervention so I found this one quite interesting, um, mainly because cardiovascular disease ranks second in the leading cause of death in people who have undergone cancer treatment. And that's sort of a startling number for me. And sort of diving a little bit deeper, it comes down to what is known as cardiotoxicity. And essentially what cardiotoxicity is, it's caused by sort of the effects of chemotherapy and radiation treatment. And it affects the heart by forcing it to pump harder and forcefully pump blood at a greater rate than what sort of a normal or healthy individual would be seeing. So diving a little bit deeper into it, cancer survivors may experience because of cardiotoxicity, disrupted vagal regulation. And sort of what vagal regulation is in short, um, it basically is autonomic dysfunction. So it's detrimental changes in heart rate variability, which I'll explain a little bit later on, and increased resting heart rate. So it's sort of recommended, generally recommended um, at this point, that to sort of minimize any disruptions within vagal regulation, you know, cancer survivors or people who have undergone cancer treatment, you know, they're encouraged to routine, routinely exercise to improve cardiorespiratory fitness. Um, Looking at sort of autonomic dysfunction from a chronic level, um, chronically, it can lead to sort of reduced parasympathetic activity and a greater sympathetic activity. So an imbalance is created between parasympathetic and uh, sympathetic modulation. Um, what does that lead to? Well, it leads to sort of increased strain placed on your heart. So looking a little bit deeper into what heart rate variability is, and this was new to me as well, which I found very interesting, but it's essentially just a balance and a ratio between low frequency and high frequency modulation. So what low frequency modulation is, it, it essentially measures sympathetic and parasympathetic control. Okay, so that's both sympathetic and parasympathetic. And then high frequency looks at respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which indicates parasympathetic control. So high frequency is solely parasympathetic control. So diving a little bit deeper into what sinus arrhythmia is, it's essentially a sign of a normal heart rhythm. So in short, your heart rate increases when you breathe in, slows when you breathe out. So it's interesting looking at it because heart rate variability can be looked at it from a couple different ways when, with regard to improving heart rate variability. So a good heart rate variability is shown to either have an increased high frequency modulation, so solely high frequency, or a reduction in low frequency and high frequency ratio. So essentially what that is, is just increasing the high frequency denominator, which is going to decrease the value of the ratio. So it's sort of looking at sort of exercise prescriptions right now, this entire study. So for cancer patients, they should incorporate aerobic exercise for cardiorespiratory fitness, as well as resistance exercise for man managing muscle atrophy 
sort of associated with the paper that I talked about a little bit earlier from a chronic level, um, and all of that sort of associated with cancer treatments. So now that sort of the background work is sort of covered, looking at sort of what the authors hypothesized. So they had two hypotheses for this study. And the first hypothesis was um, participants will experience improvements in heart rate variability, resting heart rate, and cardiorespiratory fitness, VO2 max. Their second hypothesis was that individuals with a longer time from treatment will show greater improvements compared to individuals who more recently underwent treatment. So they'll be more exposed to cardiotoxicity with regard to individuals who sort of are, are further away along the timeline from experience sort of the cardiotoxicity effects. Um, with regard to the actual exercise program, it was performed at the facility and included a mix of aerobic, anaerobic, and mobility work three times per week, which I found pretty interesting. First paper I discussed was sort of at home. This one's more at a facility now. And then when looking at the average attendance, it was 59%. So adherence was, it was okay. And then looking at sort of what the lowest number and the upper number was, adherence for the lowest um, participant was 11%, which is not great at all. But for that upper number was 96%. So quite a range there uh, for whatever reason. And then the authors wanted to sort of look at, again, this is 26 weeks long, but they wanted to break it up into the first 16, uh, first 13 weeks, sorry, and then the last 13 weeks. So they had a pre to a mid and then the mid to the post. And what they saw was interesting was the greatest improvements were actually seen in that pre to mid. So the first 13 weeks compared to the mid to the post, the following 13 weeks. And the author sort of made note that that could have been due to a possible plateau effect. Um, but with regard to that pre to mid timeframe, so the first 13 weeks, there was a great uh, significant change in resting heart rate, um, high frequency modulation, and sort of that low frequency, high frequency ratio. So again, both of those last two, very good with regard to um, sort of adjusting your heart rate variability to what is considered better or normal. When looking at their second hypothesis, breaking it up to, they use the criteria of five years. So if you're post greater than five years from sort of your cancer treatment, you actually saw favorable, more favorable outcomes with regard to the measures that they wanted to look at. If you were less than five years, then they sort of seen, they saw changes, but not as significant changes. Um, so more favorable outcomes were seen from participants um, sort of further along that timeline of experiencing cancer treatment. It kind of comes back to sort of potential limitations. And, and I like that the authors were honest with regard to limitations within the study. They could have gone a little bit more intense with regard to their training. I mean, they use heart rates of 35 to 50% to really sort of induce changes within VO2 max. I think submaximal exercise, I think is important, but to what extent that number is to sort of elicit changes, I don't think 35 to 50%, uh, personally speaking, you know, I think that's quite low. Um, and they also made note that, as I mentioned before, they saw the greatest change between pre to mid. Um, there was actually a month break, and I believe the the mid to the post, so the final 13 weeks, fell over a holiday. So, and, and the authors made note of that as well, that there was a month break, which that could have influenced the, the following 13 weeks, right? So I think when people get more sedentary and they sort of sit around, they're, they're not exercising, because again, this wasn't at home. This was, you have to go to the facility. 
So if the facility is not accessible, then there's no exercise. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it was a pretty interesting paper from that standpoint, but seeing the effects certainly of cardiotoxicity and what exercise can do to, I wouldn't say reverse the effects of it, but potentially minimize the potential effects with regard to cardiovascular disease. I think that's pretty important. So yeah, I found that paper pretty interesting. Yeah. And I think like okay, the common theme here seems to be that adherence rate and, and, and kind of just be trying to understand, okay, how can, how can we make the sort of, how, how can we think of adherence rates and sort of mm -hmm. motivating and, and trying to, um, sort of implement exercise protocols more into, into patients with cancer. So I think that that really seems to be the thing that's coming up here. And that's pretty common between kind of human studies that look at patients with cancer when it comes to exercise and adherence to it. So. Definitely. Well, one thing I did find interesting with this paper was from a gross perspective, from a very broad perspective, they were looking at cardiovascular events. So how can we sort of change or uh, not sort of adapt, but I, I would say, I, would, I think change is the right term for this, but change sort of the cardiovascular effects of cardiotoxicity and the, their inclusion criteria was a range of cancer types. So it wasn't one specific yeah. type of cancer. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting because it does open up so many different opportunities for all different cancer patients to sort of undergo this and sort of see, not re again, not reverse the effects, but potentially minimize the effects of, of cardiotoxicity yep. exactly. with regard to cardiovascular disease. So definitely pretty interesting. Um, very interesting. Which again, sort of leads into sort of the very broad question of when we look at adherence, when we look at accessibility, feasibility, all that sort of stuff, for cancer patients to go out and, you know, have the opportunities to go out and exercise, whether they do it at home or in a facility, like how can we make that better? Right. And I think from an adherence perspective, and, and certainly speaking on some of these studies, it seems like resistance training might not be the greatest, most knowledgeable form of exercise for some of these patients. And, and that could be due. In fact, they've never done it before. And I think there is potentially a gap, right, within, with regard to sort of qualified professionals and the amount of patients out there. How can we get exercise out there? Well, I think first, the first sort of barrier is providing that knowledge, getting them educated on what to do, how to do it, um, ways to do it. I think there are ways to get creative at home to exercise, which potentially, again, could, could help some of these adherence rates within these studies, but even people not even involved in these studies, just in general. Um, it, it definitely speaks to potentially that gap that needs to be filled with regard to the education part of this. And I don't know your thoughts on that, but that's, that's, that's sort of my thoughts is certainly filling that gap. How can we get that knowledge out there? If this is what to do, this is how to do it. This is how you can do it. Um, these are ways you can do it. This is the equipment that you can go out and get making it commercially available. I think all that's super important for these patients. Um, so yeah, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that it all comes down to making sure that it's a lot more accessible and that, and that we, and that we have the right exercise protocols when it comes to just how, how we can promote physical activity in patients with cancer, because at the end of the day, I mean, as, as we can see, although yes, uh, there are certain papers that sort of explore like, okay, one bout of exercise and its impact. But at the same time, we do see that chronically, like when we have chronic bouts of exercise and when exercise does take place over a longer period of time, it does absolutely have an improvement or positive impact on mm -hmm. patients with cancer when it comes to certain outcomes. So 
it really is, I think, as you said, important for us to start thinking about how we can, first of all, I mean, increase adherence rates, but mm-hmm. at the same time, also make it more accessible. So as we can see, I mean, within within the next paper they discussed, Andrew, you talked about uh, facility training, right, in comparison with the first one, and perhaps maybe developing exercise or physical activity protocols where, yes, there is a facility, but it is a lot more accessible for patients with cancer because we do see that adherence rates are not as high when it's uh, sort of house training or people doing it at home. Mm-hmm. So it's either that we come up with a better way to make sure that adherence rates are increased when doing physical activity at home. Or maybe it's just about having facilities that are available to people. So maybe thinking about community centers, even uh, where where people where people could just, you know, be not a very long drive, right? Or maybe just take a walk to their nearest community center and engage in physical activity, or perhaps mm-hmm. even implementing uh, certain um, physical activity programs at hospitals uh, that patients with cancer could be visiting regularly, uh, should they need to do that. So yeah, these are these are all ideas that come to mind really about like how we can sort of promote that further. And I think yeah. just adding on to that point as well, like I think all that's great. And then when you look at sort of the time commitment that resistance training is, like I think I don't know if if people get the idea that, oh, I have to work out six days a week, I have to do this, I have to do that. A lot of these studies are work out twice a week, you know, work out three times a week. And the max that I've seen is like three times a week, full body exercise. You know, what's that 45, 60 minutes out of your day to better your the quality of life and the life expectancy? I think, you know, you put a little bit of work in, it goes a long way. And I think, again, making it more accessible to these patients, I, I definitely think that it goes a long way for sure. Um, and then with regard to sort of the exercise protocols, I think that's something that needs to get refined a little bit more. Um, but also in saying that, recognizing the fact that there is not one one size fits all method, you know, like you can use so many different approaches with an exercise to sort of treat something and and what works for one person might not work for the other person. Um, And I also think that's important to recognize and understand, but you sort of have a general consensus of what is expected. What is the framework of what we can work within and then deviate from there for each person. But um, certainly providing that gap, that knowledge gap, and then the accessibility, as you mentioned, I think definitely goes a long way into sort of, you know, providing these patients with the opportunity to to sort of see the benefits of resistance exercise and again, increase life expectancy, because that's what it's all about at the end of the day. Um, Absolutely. So yeah. 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 And and I think that um, sort of our discussion in general, um, I, I really love the fact that we, you know, went over the training and, and kind of just looking at it generally speaking, but at the same time, kind of going back to the, you know, the importance of the molecular mechanisms and within the context of cancer cachexia and cancer in general, uh, one thing that sparked my interest or that I think is really a huge discussion uh, question here is that cancer cachexia is something that, yes, happens as a result of the fact that the person has cancer in the first place, mm-hmm. right? But that it happens to 20 to 80% of patients with cancer. And not only does it happen, it also, first of all, reduces the quality of life of patients with cancer and then also negatively feeds into the prognosis of that cancer in the first place. Mm-hmm. So then that sparks the question, well, how can we change that perception of neuromuscular health in patients with cancer? Because usually when you know when you go to a physician and someone has cancer, it's like, okay, the treatment's going to focus on the cancer and we're going to be treating the cancer specifically. But then I think it's also important for us to kind of change that perception towards looking at cancer 
and cancer cachexia in terms of treatment as almost separate things. Mm-hmm. Because if we if we try and treat cancer cachexia in particular, I think in a way it will not only be improving the quality of life of patients with cancer, because again, it'll be reducing perhaps that muscle weakness that does occur. Although yes, we did see that muscle weakness does occur prior to the occurrence of cancer cachexia, but that but that after cancer cachexia starts happening, it starts becoming directly caused by cancer cachexia, that muscle weakness. Mm-hmm. So what about if we start targeting some of these molecular mechanisms that do occur across the board, that is, mm-hmm. and then that not only improves their quality of life, but also starts improving the prognosis of that cancer, mm-hmm. right? Because at, at the at the end of the day, what cancer cachexia does is that there's certain metabolic dysregulation that happens in the skeletal muscles. Mm-hmm. And if we, let's say, are able to kind of revert that or maybe get it back to normal or not even to normal, but just improve it a little bit, then maybe we're going to have improved outcomes that then will indirectly lead to the process of treating that cancer. Mm-hmm. So it's almost as if we're treating cancer cachexia to be able to treat the cancer as opposed mm-hmm. to just treating the cancer and forgetting about the cancer cachexia. Yeah. No, so I, I think that that's really yeah. what, what, should, what, should, what should be prioritized um, kind of into the future with the research and at the same time with kind of that changed perception of, of physicians in terms of prescribing exercise let's say, as you discussed, in terms of even future research on molecular mechanisms and drugs that could be uh, prescribed to try and target cancer cachexia in particular. Yeah, I think there's so many different ways to sort of tackle it, right? Um, Sort of the one that we talked about today mainly was exercise, right? Um, Because I think think in this case, I think people should begin to look at exercise as a form of medication, right? a form of, of lifelong medication that's going to not only sort of treat the issue, but I think it's going to make life so much easier in general as well, not only from just sort of, you know, what you see physically, but also emotionally, how you feel throughout the day, um, psychologically wise. I mean, looking at the mind, just being more positive throughout the day. I think exercise brings so many benefits. Um, and I definitely think it should be looked at more of a medication as opposed to just something everybody should do. Right. So I think, it, I think yeah. from that standpoint, um, I think we can sort of advocate and emphasize, Hey, exercise, exercise, exercise. But again, there's steps that need to be taken, right? Like Absolutely. you say at, at the top of the food chain, you have sort of your doctors, right. And I think filling within that knowledge gap of listen, exercise is a good form of treatment, right? Yeah. It's a good form of medication, not only for this, but also this, 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 if you connect the dots of all the benefits of exercise, yeah. I think you can start to address a lot of things and a lot of underlying things as well. And I don't say that as like a form of cancer, obviously, like how you treat cancer. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm saying more from the perspective of, like you say, here you have cancer, but then you also have this, right? Yeah. So it's more treating the other thing as well with regard to everything that's going on with the actual treatment yeah. of the cancer itself. So, you know, Which ultimately just improves the outcomes overall, right? Like exactly. it's, it's not just that, like, oh, cancer cachexia to just like, have less muscle weakness. And in a way, it's like we're treating this and therefore, mm-hmm. you know, leading to the treatment of that indirectly. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's, that's really what comes to mind. At the end of the day, it comes down to sort of the quality of life. And I also think life expectancy. I don't know if you if you, you will sort of agree with that as well, but that's sort absolutely. of what I look you know, at. I do. I how do. can we improve yeah. the quality of life? Yeah. And how yeah. can we increase life expectancy? I think that's absolutely. sort of the, the big thing. Absolutely. With that. So, yeah. 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 All right. Uh, well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion. Uh, thank you all for listening to the first episode of Bare Bones Physiology. 
uh definitely look forward to uh the next couple of episodes that we're going to be having and and you know within the podcast the next many episodes uh andrew andrew is going to be taking us on to uh the journey uh onto the next journey of our podcast um and uh yeah if you want to leave a comment down below uh if you have any questions any sort of interesting uh points that you thought about as you were listening to us feel free to leave it in the comments um and if you want to check out the papers that we discussed today uh, please feel free to do so uh, from the description down below. Uh, we're going to have all the links. We're going to have all the titles there. And we absolutely encourage you to check out these papers. And yeah, uh, thank you all for listening. See you in the next episode with Andrew.